0: Welcome to Hidden Headlines, the good news, the God news, the news that the secular media won't touch. I'm your host, Brian Sussman. This is the run-up to Christmas edition of Hidden Headlines, where, of course, soon the secular media headlines will declare Merry Christmas. And then a few stories later, you'll no doubt hear about the story in which the nativity scene has been deemed unlawful by a member of the city council. And the ACLU has demanded that the Church of Satan is allowed to place a pentagram and a goat skull next to the manger. And what a world. What a world. (laughs) This is also, of course, the time of the year where we hear much about Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Christmas trees, and Frosty the Snowman. Of course, this imagery steers eyes away from the real headline that should be front and center. The one that announces... The Messiah, who takes away the sins of the world and promises eternal life, was born. So, all that said, can one really blame those skeptical of Jesus being the Savior of the world when you see all of that? Especially when Jesus is placed on the same stage as characters like Santa and Rudolph and Frosty. So, that brings us to this edition of Hidden Headlines. What are the hidden headlines this week? Well, they are, in fact, the biblical proof that Jesus, whose real name in Hebrew is Yeshua, is indeed Messiah King, whose birth date is traditionally celebrated on December 25th. Now, the question is, was he really born on December 25th? I would say likely not, but does it really matter? Let's dive into the history for just a moment. The earliest known reference to commemorating the birth of Christ, you know, Jesus the Messiah, on December 25th is found in a Roman calendar dated A.D. 354. There is additional history that shows us that Dionysius Exegus, a 6th century monk, stated Jesus was born on December 25th. Other traditions give dates as early as mid-November or even as late as March. However, the fact is, many pagan cultures around the Mediterranean and across Europe observed feasts on or around December 25th, marking the winter solstice. The Celtics had the solstice with Baldar, the Scandinavian sun god, who was struck down by a mistletoe arrow. There was a pagan festival of the Romans, the festival of Saturnalia, where there were feasts and drunkenness and gifts given to the poor. The Germans had a Yuletide festival, again, with lots of drinking. In fact, drunkenness was closely connected with these pagan feasts. So at some point, it's thought that the Catholic Church adopted the day, December 25th, to keep people from indulging in the pagan festivals and do something that was a little more, quote-unquote, Christian. Interestingly, the born-again Christian sects, such as the Puritans who left the Church of England and came to North America in the 1600s, a.k.a. the Pilgrims, they totally forbade Christmas. They considered it too pagan. In fact, Governor Bradford, who was the first governor of the New England colony, threatened colony members with work, jail, or fines if they were caught observing Christmas. Again, this was in the 1600s. As for me, I'm a Messiah-believing Jew. I, too, personally don't place much of an emphasis on Christmas. Now, if it's your thing, that's great. But all that aside, my hope is that in this podcast, you will find the real reason for the season, so to speak, through the biblical prophecies found throughout the original Jewish scriptures, also known as the Tanakh but commonly referred to, of course, by Gentile Christians as the Old Testaments. So let's go back into those scriptures to see what they say about the coming Messiah. Now, our expert for this special edition of Hidden Headlines is a friend of mine, Rabbi Charlie Cohen. Charlie is the congregational leader of Congregation Sima Haranai. It's a fellowship of Jewish followers of Messiah Yeshua in Las Gatas, California. That's in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now, please, I urge you share this podcast with a friend or family member who is a, is a Jesus skeptic. Seriously, I think this will be so good for them. Obviously, this podcast will also be a tremendous resource for you if you're sharing your faith in Messiah with a Jewish friend or relative. You may actually want to share the entire podcast with them after taking notes. And for notes and more information on this, just visit BrianSussman.com. I've got a blog post dated December 20th, 2018 that will provide you with the references to the scriptures that are going to be shared in the coming minutes. So, with that in mind, my interview with Rabbi Cohen. We began with me asking, Charlie, about the age-old Jewish expectation of the Messiah.
1: Yeah, the, the issue for Jewish people, there is a messianic expectation, there always has been, because of the nature of these biblical prophecies. The... The 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 problem, however, and the, the reason why in the Jewish world we don't have everyone standing up and saying, well, who could have fit the bill better than Yeshua? Obviously, no one else came along and did any better than him. It's because, I think because of the historical baggage, there's an inclination towards a kind of a continental divide between Christianity and Judaism. And that inclination helps you Pay attention to certain trends that you see in the scripture or emphasize them. Here's the trend. Uh, Much more than 50%, the vast majority of all of those Messianic prophecies speak of the kingship of the Messiah, that he would be a great king. And the reference, obviously, the number one connection would be to David, who is the king of all Israel and is considered the greatest king amongst all of the kings of israel kind of the paradigm from which all others should have followed so making that connection of the messiah to someone like king david along comes yeshua he's uh, he comes to his people in the land of israel two thousand years ago and if you're looking backwards that majority of messianic prophecies, and you're saying to yourself, was he the great king? Did he become the king, restore the nation, did all people everywhere bow down to him, uh, and so on? You would have to say no. And so this, I think, is a given ammunition to that, as I said, continental divide. It's It more or less is something, you could even say comforting for the Jewish people who have faced at times through history persecution and or forced conversions from christianity who would look at that and say okay we're we're safe or comfortable in this we haven't missed the messiah because look here's a list what we're doing in our and what we do in our study is to look at the totality of the messianic prophecies not just focus we do focus on the kingly prophecies, but there are other aspects to what is promised in God's word that the Messiah would do and
0: accomplish, and of course, uh, if you look at the totality of all of this, uh, Rabbi Charlie, you also yeah. have to look at the future because there will be a future kingdom that is established where whereby all knees shall bow to Yeshua Messiah.
1: Well, yeah. In fact, you know, one of my criticisms of that of the other approach, you know, the traditional Jewish approach, is that those prophecies were taken too literally. And right away, when someone says that about anything in the Bible, uh, if you have any kind of a conservative or fundamental approach to the Bible, you recoil at a statement like that. And you go, what do I mean, take it too literally? You can't overly take literally the Bible. It's the truth. (laughs) Well, that's not exactly what I mean. What I mean is that, in fact, as you point out, there is a future fulfillment to... uh, the pr- prophetic anticipation of, a, of the king. And so he had some role or roles to fulfill uh, 2,000 years ago. And other role a greater role, well, a significant and final role will be that as the returning king. And by taking it literally, what I mean by that is to say, well, he must be king everywhere. He All Jews everywhere must bow down to him. There must be world peace. All those kinds of things were anticipated at the appearance of Messiah. Mm-hmm. So, of course, if you, if you hold the Messiah to that standard, you would be disappointed and say, well, Yeshua didn't do that. But we affirm it. We just say that portion of the fulfillment is what we would call uh, associated with the apocalypse, the final revelation of the Messiah to the world, where he will be that king he will uh reside we believe in jerusalem and reign over the world the nations will yield to him and all jews everywhere hopefully will bow down to him it has its fulfillment but it it, there were other things that he must do and did do at that time
0: you know the other part of it is for for jewish people uh again, just looking at the experience they've had living on planet Earth, there has been so much persecution and so much wrongdoing done in the name of Christianity, and it's true. Uh, there have been many who have come uh, over the centuries who uh, proclaim to be followers of Christ, and yet the awful things they have done in terms of yeah. persecution, etc., and that's something that it's, it's very difficult for most Jews to get past they almost need a, a historical revelation.
1: That's right. And, you know, one thing that I'm quick to point out is, let's be honest about this, the historical baggage of, uh, of, you know, to put it very mildly, euphemistically, the friction between Jews and Christians, is at the root of this. So that if we go back, let's just honestly turn the clock back 2,000 years. What did the Jews of the Holy Land at that time. What did they think? Did they walk up to Yeshua and say, are we having world peace? You know, did they walk up to him and say, are you going to be crowned the king of the world? Well, you know, all Jews everywhere bow down to you because you could be the Messiah. No. They were concerned about other things. And, uh, of course, there was concern, nationally speaking, but uh, the list that came a thousand years later, isn't what fell from the lips of those who heard him speak. They would say things like, wow, we've never heard anyone teach like this. He seems to be more authoritative than even our best Mm teachers." They would say things like, oh, he's descended from the tribe of Judah and from the line of David. Isn't this amazing? And then some even learned uh, late, late in the game that he was born in Bethlehem, just like, the prophecy said he would be born in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helpful to acknowledge the historical baggage and, and, and the chasm that exists there. And but we need to be honest, both everyone needs to be honest, Christians and Jews. That there is a reason why uh, you know, the Jewish view was kind of shoved into this corner, if you would, or backed up into a corner in order to defend themselves. They kind of became proactive in this. And, and this is how, I believe at least, the emphasis on who is the Messiah, what will he do, uh, developed in Jewish thinking defensively. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the actual scriptural uh, narrative or, you know, the facts that we have in the, uh, the Gospels and the Acts and so on don't paint that same picture. Mm-hmm. People weren't asking those questions, they were asking different questions.
0: So let's get into some of these prophecies that are oftentimes a part of the, the Christmas celebration, yeah. um, beginning with the fact that Messiah would have to be born in Bethlehem. Talk to yeah, us about that,
1: that. Okay, that's found in the book of Micah. And, and very interesting, it says, if uh, I can kind of loosely quote here, because I don't have the actual scripture right in front of me, but something like uh, Bethlehem. You who are very small amongst the villages or cities of Judah, from you will come one who will save my people. You know, that's kind of a nutshell, but, Mm -hmm. I mean, literally named Bethlehem. And in the time of Yeshua's public ministry, there was even an incident where he was teaching, and uh, some people were buying it and some people weren't. The ones that were that particular day, who weren't, they said, well, okay, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you ever heard that expression, there's something fishy going on here. And they were like, <laughs> well, okay, it's pretty good teaching, but what good thing can ever come out of the Galilee? The Bible says he would be born in Bethlehem. Well, he was. <laughs> but <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, born there, yes, because of... uh." The Romans had ordered a census of all the Jews. In other words, in those days, you would be identified with a certain village or place, and in order to be uh, enrolled on the census, to pay taxes, in other words, you need to go to your ancestral village, where they'll count you up and put you on the, on the roll. And I guess that was the uh, ancestral village. You know, Joseph and his family had to go there. So they went there for that reason, but... Mary was ready to give birth, and so he was literally born in Bethlehem, but that wasn't their present home. They, uh, After fleeing to Egypt and returning, they diverted and to the Galilee which, because the northern part of Israel at that time was not Judea, was the Roman province of Judea. It was still controlled by Rome, but uh, would be a very much uh, less or safer area to live in. So, grew up, lived in Nazareth, but was born in
0: Bethlehem, fulfilled the prophecy. And fulfilling the prophecy prior to that, I think we have to obviously mention, and this is a stumbling block for a lot of people, the fact that he was born of a virgin. Let's discuss that, Rabbi Shirley.
1: Yeah, well, see, I feel like it's more controversial than it needs to be, because, uh, first of all, the actual scriptural passage that that is taken from, from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, can be debated, and and uh, as to whether it means a young woman, a maiden, a virgin, and so, uh, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, those translators who were translating from the Hebrew did, in fact, choose the word virgin in, in Greek, and many uh, English Bibles lean on that in order to Uh, confirm that the prophecy was a virgin. Of course, we know that Mary was and uh, gave birth miraculously. Mm -hmm. But on the Jewish side, they look at this and they say, well, wait a minute. If if we just look at the Hebrew the way we know Hebrew, we would say that passage in Isaiah says a young woman would give birth. Mm -hmm. But then they say, let's back this up one step further. The context of the prophecy itself you you could argue very strongly, isn't even Messianic. It had to do with a sign that was being given to a Judean king to know that his land was not going to be invaded uh, at that time uh, by an alliance that had been formed with the northern king. So this was brother on brother. It was a threat of civil war. It was a threat that the northern kingdom, uh, who had made an alliance uh, with the... I don't know, Syria, I believe. I remember, right? Well, Isaiah was sent to tell that king, don't worry about it. This northern kingdom and the alliance they formed is going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And as a sign, he said, the young woman, which, as I said, is often translated virgin, mm-hmm. and could be, will give birth, and before that son is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, this threat will be wiped away. Mm-hmm. And so... Jewish commentators look at that and say, well, look, this has nothing to do with the Messiah. Well, you know, as we often see, things have multiple fulfillments uh, prophetically in the Bible, and the apostles were not immune from looking at passages such as that and saying, okay, it meant that at the time. However, it's also speaking about a great deliverance that will come through uh, miraculous childbirth, and here it fits it.
0: I love that scripture though. It's uh, Isaiah seven fourteen fifteen. Therefore, Adonai Himself will give you a sign: the young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel. And by the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, and then it goes on. That's just yeah. a beautiful, beautiful passage.
1: I know it is, and you know, of course the apostles look at that and went, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, here we have seen the fulfillment of this <laughs> in our days as well. And I think the thing to emphasize especially these are the you know any curiosity interest on in the part of Jewish people is look at the connection and linkage of Messiah's actual birth to the patriarchs Abraham Sarah the the birth of the, of the covenantal son Isaac Sarah is 90 years old and Baron Abraham is a hundred years old miraculous childbirth and then in the case of their son Isaac who marries Rebekah Rebecca cannot have children until Isaac prays and it says the Lord opened her womb, miraculous childbirth. And then in the third generation of the patriarch, Jacob, who first marries Leah by trickery but then his chosen wife Rachel. She does not bear children and Leah has uh, four children in a row, four sons in a row. And then Rachel says, "Here, take my handmaid," who then has two sons. And she celebrates that, you know, uh And then Leah does the same thing, and then her handmaiden has two sons, and so we're all the way up to ten sons, and still Rachel has never given birth. Hmm. How does she give birth? Well, a little awkward. She says to her husband, give me children or else I die. But he did pray, and it it does say that God opened her womb, and that's when she gave birth to Joseph, uh, her 11th, or their 11th child, and then uh, right before she died, Benjamin.
0: So you look at all of these all of these patriarchs of the faith, they all had somewhat spectacular births. I can even think of Moses and his situation after being birthed, being floated Absolutely. down the river. Yes.
1: If you take away the spectacular birth in which Scripture is very clear, mm-hmm. God has a hand in it, miraculously,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we have no patriarchs mm-hmm. other than Abraham, you know, he would be the last one, the first and only. <laughs> so, I mean, it's true, you know. We should really literally say the founding of the of the Jewish uh, nation in Israel is entirely dependent on miraculous childbirth. It's the hallmark, you could even say. Mm-hmm. So when Yeshua comes along, and then an angel speaks, you know, to Mary, and the thing was uh, also with John, which was miraculous, right away our radar should go up, because... This is what happened with the patriarchs.
0: The other thing, this time of the year we, we always hear about the, the, the three kings from the Orient who come to, to worship the baby Jesus. Um, historians tell us that uh, there's a lot more to that story than, than meets the eye, but the fact of the matter is the Scripture tells us that he was to be adored by great persons, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, we don't know much about the Magi, of course, and For me, I would put that into a category that I call a sign. So, in other words, there's not much to be learned from it. Uh, It's like a pointer. It's like a sign. Hey, people, look. There he is. And so, similarly, even the angels who were in the fields with the shepherds, they didn't say much, right? They spoke to the shepherds and they said, hey, go down to the village there. Something great's happening for our people. And uh, the birth in Bethlehem was a sign, so that later you could look at this man and say, "Okay, are there indicators that he's telling the truth?" The signs were affirmations, and the Magi were an affirmation. So when God brought great people, we know still don't know who they were from the east, but obviously they had some importance. They were carrying silver and gold and frankincense and looking for. They said the one born, the King of the Jews. Mm-hmm. It's a sign. Uh, you can't learn a tremendous amount from it, but it wasn't meant to teach. It was meant to affirm. And it was meant to get their attention and affirm. God's here and doing something. Pay attention. The signs are always that way in the Bible.
0: Another sign, and you alluded to this earlier when we you spoke of John, of course, or that would be John the Baptist, as he's known. Yeah. Um, but... The scriptures are very clear in Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, that that this Messiah would be preceded by one who would announce him. Could you talk to us about that?
1: Okay, that is really interesting, because uh, this is one of the things in Jewish tradition that the one who precedes or announces the Messiah is a very important person in our tradition and uh, and pops up at important life cycle and uh, holy day situations. For example... At the Passover, within the Passover celebration, the meal we always have uh, after uh, we have four cups of wine that are scattered throughout the meal. And each each one has its own certain significance. And after the meal, we have a cup for Elijah, none other than Elijah, and it's called the Kose Eliyahu, the cup of Elijah. And uh, we open the door. We usually use a child. Has the job of doing this? The door swung open, and we announced, you know, this would be a good time for the Messiah to come and for Elijah to announce him, you know, uh, he has that role. When John came, people were wondering, even, because he was, uh, you know, rather ascetic. He uh, didn't hang out with wealthy people, and he spoke very powerfully. People were listening, but he said, I am not... The man, one who's coming after me, is the man. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. And the man coming after me. And here's the interesting thing. How would he know who the Messiah would be? How do you know it's him? Mm -hmm. And it's his job to tell everyone. So we read in, in the book of John that God spoke to him and said, here's how you'll know. He said, when you see my spirit descend on him in bodily form, you'll know that's the guy. And sure enough, Mm -hmm. John was at the River Jordan immersing people and calling for people to repent. Uh, And this is, is also, by the way, in keeping with Jewish tradition of immersion for sanctification and purification. Yeshua himself shows up, and at first he tried to stop him because, You know, it was obviously already a sense that, even in his own spirit, that this was a holy man. And when he did immerse him, when Yeshua arose uh, in the river, he said, he witnessed this. And he said, the Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form. He said, this, he said, I'm testifying to you, is the Son of God. So he himself received that as a sign. What does it mean? He doesn't talk about that, nor really is that explained. It's as a sign. And in fact, it was accompanied with a second sign, which uh, in the Jewish tradition we call a Ba'kol, which is where when the, uh, God speaks from the heavens so that we can hear here on earth, it occurred at Sinai uh, when all the Israel gathered in front of the mountain and mm-hmm. Moses went up on the mountain and they heard him speak uh, the commandments. That's the Ba'kol. So the bachol was associated with that same event. Everyone heard, this is my son in whom I am well
0: pleased. This is somewhat of an aside, but most Gentiles do not realize that John the Baptist didn't invent baptism. <laughs> right. <laughs> they really think, oh, he, he was the first. This is, no, as you just described, this is a long-standing tradition amongst Jewish people.
1: That's right. And, and, and not only not longstanding, but an integral tra- tradition, even up to this very day because immersion is needed when one becomes unclean ritually, and that's not an implication of sin. It's, you know, there are various reasons why you could be ritually unclean. Even accidentally eating non-kosher food, for mm-hmm. example, would make you unclean. Uh, but, but it also came to be associated with repentance and, and forgiveness, and this is why uh, John was understood when he cried out. Uh, to the people. You know, it's time for you people to straighten up. Be immersed. In other words, you're making a public declaration in the immersion, so you're right. Uh, It was was baptism, called in the Christian context, wasn't invented by John. He was simply playing on uh, this aspect of Jewish life, which Mm -hmm. was possibly weekly for many, uh, and for the ladies, monthly, certainly, and a very important aspect of their life. And we know, it's very interesting, uh, so many of these, let me use the Christian term baptismal, but in the Jewish term it's a mikveh, have been found in and around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that date to the time of Yeshua and John the Baptist. And a uh, A very interesting thing was recently discovered by an archaeologist, which is, uh, when one was immersed before ascending to the Temple Mount, so that they could participate in the worship at the Temple Mount, otherwise they might be questionable or unclean, how would the Temple guards on the Mount know to let them in? People, scholars, have wondered about this. Well, they found these little ceramic chips, this is very recently, uh, that are stamped with the imprint, uh, something to the effect of, Holy Unto the Lord. And they now know, and they found these around the, uh, in the, I don't know, buried near the mikveh or whatever, that there was an observer who would be standing there at the mikveh and he would see the worshiper enter, be immersed, do everything properly, of course, as needed, proper blessings, everything appropriate, and when he came out of the water, or she, it would be given this little chip, and then when they went to the Temple Mount, they would hand that to the Temple Guard, and they would be admitted. Hmm. So here is historical, archaeological evidence that supports this as well. Wow.
0: So then, Rabbi Charlie, as you're talking about the mikvahs, you're talking about the immersions, the baptisms, I'm listening to you, and Quite honestly, this is all new news to me. I, I haven't yeah. heard this before. This is, this is brand new, isn't it, in terms yeah. of the discovery?
1: That absolutely is. I mean, we're talking about within months. And uh, I've been reading about it online. Uh, archaeologists in Jerusalem have published it. And it's amazing. We, we knew just logically that something like that must be the case. But now we know. the, the Historical evidence is there. We know how important the mickla was. And now we know that, you know, there were attendants who were standing there at the mikvah, they were watching to make sure that uh, the process happened properly, and then, on the Temple Mount itself, Hmm. uh, the temple guards were obviously instructed that, you know, when the worshiper comes up, they return the chit, and they're permitted entry, based on what? Their sanctification through the mikvah.
0: My goodness, this is fantastic. Archaeology is so wonderful, it is. Let's let's continue here because as we're talking about uh, Yeshua Jesus during this quote unquote Christmas season, uh, we also know that the prophecies would talk about his talked about his life as being a prophet like Moshe or Moses, and then yeah. having a ministry of binding up the brokenhearted and proclaiming liberty to the captives. All these things, of course, fulfilled. But let's talk about the scriptures leading up to the fulfillment.
1: Okay, well of course, Deuteronomy 18 is the record of the statement by Moses, who was, uh, according to tradition, the entire book of Deuteronomy was written in the 11th month of the last year of his life. So, you know, in the last 30 days of his life, he's wrapping everything up in the book of Deuteronomy, and suddenly he says, and by the way, God will raise up for you a prophet just like me, pay attention to him. And that's uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 18. Now, the interesting thing is, I think it's, I can say this fairly safely, it's pretty universally accepted in the Jewish world that that prophecy has never been fulfilled. And uh, when you look, read in the Gospels, you'll see time and time again, when Yeshua is approached, people would say, are you the one? Are you the prophet? And, and what they're talking about is Deuteronomy 18. They want to know, are you finally going to be the one? More than just the ability to say these are the words of God, but the authority to make pronouncements in the name of God that were authoritative and would require all worshipers to adhere to and to follow. And so waiting, 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 the prophets were a big deal, of course. But no one came along like uh, Moses or Moshe, who was the lawgiver.
0: And then the ministry of, well, we read this in Isaiah, Isaiah 61. It's almost like a job description for the Messiah um, in the way he would, quote-unquote, bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and, and announce the acceptable year of the Lord. What does all that mean?
1: When he read that himself aloud in the synagogue at Nazareth...
0: When, when Yeshua read this. Yeah. Yes. People got pretty excited. So he steps up. He step. He steps up before the congregation, and they're having, I guess, like the parsha. They're they're reading from the from the scroll. Correct. Yeah. And do you think this was an assigned reading for that day, or or was this something that just he just did before the congregation?
1: Well, it, I think it's likely that uh, that particular reading was the. Uh, what we call the Haftarah or the reading for the prophets, mm-hmm. that is associated with the reading from the Torah, mm-hmm. for that day.
0: Um, so I think that, so that means that synagogues all over, the, all over the Jewish world, they'd be reading that, that assigned scripture on that day.
1: I would think. Yeah. And, you know, many within, you know, within, uh, you know, the observant uh, Jewish world, believe that the, the cycle of the Torah and the prophets goes back all the way to Ezra and Nehemiah was established by them after the return from the captivity in Babylon mm-hmm. so we're looking at a very ancient uh, cycle of reading the Torah the first five books of the Bible and an associated passage from the prophets Now I, I have a feeling that since Yeshua's time Isaiah 61 isn't necessarily associated with one of those 54 Torah readings anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that probably happened after the fact. Sure. During the Talmudic period, when like, hey, I think we need to revise our schedule here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, a, it's, it's a little too blatant, huh? <laughs> a little too blatant.
1: In fact, it's possible even Isaiah 53 was one of those Torah readings, or, you know, prophetic readings mm-hmm. in the Torah cycle, but has been removed. Uh, that's what I suspect. But, when you read uh, Isaiah 61, you know, it's very comforting, assuring. Uh, words, you know, proclaim the year of favor of Adonai, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those in Zion who mourn, give them garlands instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, a cloak of praise instead of a heavy spirit. Uh, they'll be called oaks of righteousness planted by, by the Lord. Uh, he, he will, and here comes the, what I call the R words of uh, the activities of the Messiah. He will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore sites long destroyed, renew the ruined cities. This is the Jewish expectation of Messiah to this very day. Mm-hmm. And when Yeshua read that in the synagogue that morning, people got excited. Because even though Judea existed and had a measure not a big measure, but a measure of independence from Rome, it was still under the thumb of Rome. When he read that, wow, people stood back and said, well, this is great news, you know. Uh, But unfortunately, he tempered that as well. When he said, good news as it is, you probably won't receive it anyway because it's coming from my mouth. (laughs) And they tried to toss him off a mountaintop, you know.
0: Well, and this is a good point, because the scriptures are also very clear that this Messiah would be undesired, rejected by his own people, rejected by the leadership of the day, so all of this is consistent.
1: Right. The problem in Jewish interpretation of the Bible is trying to reconcile these two ideas, that the Messiah would be received with open arms, and he would be rejected by the same people. And how could this be? It can't be. It because... It wasn't fully understood or even fully I don't, even fully revealed yet. What the initial work of the Messiah would require, and it wasn't to be that global king, not just yet. He had a, a, a mediatorial role, a high priestly role, even though he was from Judah. He had a, a role in, uh, in, a, in atonement that ultimately would supplant the role of atonement in the Levitical sacrifices, All of those kinds of things weren't fully appreciated or understood.
0: And you mentioned the Atonement, and we can't mention the Atonement without mentioning the fact that it had been prophesied that he would also be raised from the dead.
1: Yeah. So, uh, a little bit cryptically, but but some of those prophecies were better understood after the fact. Mm -hmm. Even after the fact, we read of the story of Yeshua walking with several disciples. Explaining to them because they didn't understand, and when he got done explaining, they said, "Weren't our hearts burning within us?" Mm -hmm. Heard those words, and so he had to walk them through all of the scripture, and then that would be linked with what they knew and had seen in the previous
0: years. And all that makes sense because when you think about it, we read the Book of Revelation, for example, in the in the quote unquote New Testament. And it seems a bit cryptic, but there will come a time where uh, during those events or after those events, it will all make sense. So these prophecies are much the same.
1: Yeah. I would take, for example, the Book of Daniel, in which you have world kingdoms that are being called lions and bears and things such as that. Mm -hmm. And after the fact, now that we know, we've seen the... the, uh, Persian Empire, the Median Empire, Mm -hmm. and the Greek empires and the Roman Empires all come and go. You can go back and read the book of Daniel and go, whoa, that is so accurate. Mm -hmm. But in his time, I don't think anyone would have had any clue what he was talking about. What do you mean the bear is going to rise up? You know, and what's with this lion and all these weird animal figures and, you know, horns and all this kind of stuff? So, a lot of prophecy, for various reasons, you know, God has his reasons, is understood in hindsight, mm-hmm. not, always, not always fully understood ahead of the time, but once understood, you have no choice but to glorify
0: God. And of course, we should also let our, our, our Jewish listeners know that when we speak of the book of Revelation in the New Testament, yeah. um, so much of the, the prophetic in the book of Revelation comes from the Tanakh. These are right from the Jewish prophets.
1: Yeah. Uh, you're right. A lot of the. Well, because the the, the vision of. of called. Uh, John's vision, called the Book of Revelation, mm-hmm. uh, it's an expansion of uh, apoco- the apocalyptic idea, which does exist elsewhere uh, in Scripture, in the Tanakh, the and uh, the book of Zechariah is a good example, the 12 chapters of Zechariah, uh, there's apocalyptic literature elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And his vision was, you, you could say, kind of a detailed expansion on that apocalyptic idea, mm-hmm. which is simply, if we, if we put this very succinctly, that there, first of all, there would be an end of the age. What does that mean? The end of the world? No. Now, do we have time for me to mention something about this notion of uh, end time uh, eschatology?
0: As, as long idea. as you brought it up, I'll I'll allow you.
1: <laughs> okay, let me wander off on a little
0: tangent here. Okay, this 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 will be the special edition inside the special edition. Go ahead, that's great. There
1: are only two religions in the world that have an eschatology that is positive. Eschatology means that there will eventually be an end of the age we live in. And here's how it wraps up. Mm -hmm. Every other religion in the world has a devastatingly negative eschatology, including Buddhism, Hmm. which is supposedly this peaceful, loving religion, you know. You know, you sit cross-legged and meditate in a Zen state or whatever. Mm -hmm. Every other religion talks about the destruction and annihilation of the world in their eschatology. Uh, Islam does. In Islam, a fire begins in Yemen and consumes the world destroying everybody. In Buddhism, it's nihilism. Everything just evaporates into nothingness, ultimately, when the final Buddha comes. And so on and so forth. Only Judaism and Christianity, because Christianity is a daughter of Judaism Mm -hmm. and picks up the same and expands on the same idea, has a positive view that there is, in fact, an end of the present age, which simply means a change in the way God relates to the human race, Mm. And in Judaism and in Christianity, it's a very positive change. We say, and the Bible agrees with us, that that's the final, uh, permanent appearance of the Messiah, who rules and reigns from Jerusalem and sets things aright. Eschatology, it's the
0: talk about the end time of ending things. And you know, that is so hopeful, and, and that's my hope during this particular season, Rabbi, that... That there will be Jews and Gentiles alike who come to know the truth, because this truth will set them free. And again, the end game is so wonderful, isn't it? Wouldn't it be yeah. nice to know that you 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 go to your your last breath knowing that there's something even better awaiting you?
1: Right. So to pull this back to the track we were on a minute ago, mm-hmm.
0: before
1: I diverted a little bit, the the both the Jewish as I say, the Jewish and Christian es- eschatologies are positive, but at the book of Revelation, it affirms that the end of the age will be, uh, the sign of the end of the age will be that God's judgment on the world will be visible and noted as that he is the initiator of it. And our little miniature example of that would be Israel and Egypt, when Moses stood before Pharaoh and made certain demands, miraculous things happen, and finally, even Pharaoh's most closest aides and assistants said, don't you see, this is the hand of God. And at the end of the age, when God is determined to shift and change the way he relates to the race, which will now be through a present, visible, seen king, Messiah himself, that there are markers of that, and one of the markers is uh, judgment on nations or certain nations that will be visible, visible and known as the hand of God. And so the book of Revelation, isn't so strange when we read about those things, because the various cups and bowls of wrath and so on. It's simply affirming that that is, in fact, the apocalyptic moment, that at the end of the age, his judgment is visible, and then, we as well, his Messiah will be known and will be visible.
0: That the Messiah will be known and will be visible. And that's my prayer for you during this special season, that you will come to know him and that he will be real to you. I hope you've enjoyed this special edition of Hidden Headlines for this Christmas season 2018. For more information about me or ways to follow me, just go to com Also, I do, as I mentioned, have notes regarding this particular Hidden Headlines podcast on my blog. It's dated December 20th, 2018, so all of the scriptural references involving the prophecies, the Jewish prophecies of the coming Messiah, they will be there for you to see as well. And while you're at briansussman.com, don't forget my Another Chance podcast. Amazing stories about people I know who have received Another Chance From the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thanks for joining me on this edition of Hidden Headlines. I'm Brian Sussman.